Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it is good to be with you again. This is the news edition of Bible Prophecy Talk, which is hopefully going to be a bi-weekly podcast in which I analyze news stories so that we can better understand the world and these news stories and make better decisions, but with the overarching goal of basically watching for the specific biblical signs we're to look for uh, before Christ's return. All right, last time we started off with geopolitics, but I didn't get too much Israel news, so let's go through some Israel news starting off. Um, this is five days ago, Breitbart News, Israel strikes targets in Syria in response to missile attack near nuclear reactor. A missile launch from Syria struck southern Israel early Thursday, setting off air raid sirens near the country's top secret nuclear reactor, the Israeli military uh, said. So how top secret is it? I don't know. We're hearing about it here. <laughs> but I think the idea is that it is officially a power plant, but it's commonly understood to be also a weapons uh, uh, where they would manufacture warheads, etc. Anyway, the big story here is that the missiles, I don't believe, were known, uh, in this case, from Syria to be this long range. It was somewhat of a surprise that they could uh, could reach this far, which, of course, is, you know, it would be a big deal if they were able to hit that target specifically. I think that Syria said they were trying to shoot down a plane or something like that. But anyway, there's some, some confusion about the range of the uh, missile. But as this article suggests, there was a, a they were striking Syria in response to that. Um, you know, I'm just now sort of getting my, you know, feet wet, as it were, with is Israel news. And, you know, it's hard to tell what is commonplace and what is a, a news story here. Um, so maybe we'll learn more about that as we go along here. This one was a big one. This got all over the place. This is from the Jewish press one day ago. Iran's foreign minister claimed John Kerry revealed 200 covert Israeli ops against Iran in Syria. So this Iranian foreign minister uh, claimed in a recording of a conversation leaked to the New York Times and other news outlets that during the Obama administration, then U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry revealed him information about covert Israeli military operations in Syria. And I think I saw the day John Kerry came out and vehemently, you know, uh, denied doing this. And really, there's no way to tell. I mean, it's a he said, she said kind of thing. But I would say the only thing that we could really gather from this is if he really did do it, the people that would know would be Israel because they would probably have intel from back then about knowing something that did or didn't happen around then and kind of could trace that back to yeah, it was John Kerry that leaked it, which would probably not bode well for current uh, uh, um, administration stuff. I guess he's just the climate czar now, so who knows? Maybe it has nothing to do with it. Um, let's see. Israeli or Israel Defense Forces Chief of Staff warns looming escalation in Gaza. There's a lot of stuff about this. And again, this, I don't know how commonplace this is. There was a place in the in, near the old city where uh, Palestinians would go that they kind of walled off for some reason or another. And then everybody was protesting in the streets. You know, the Palestinians couldn't go to that place. And then it just, you know, this kind of back and forth protest and, and violence. And, the, you know, the riot police came out and broke up the riot or the protests or whatever. So a lot of people condemned that. 
you know, I, I have, I remember, remember from when I was following this years ago that there was, you know, the certain press uh, people would make a thing out of anything and, and to make Israel look bad. I don't know if this is that or which way to look at it at that point. So my analysis on this is, is going to be pretty, pretty lousy until I get uh, a little bit more uh, familiar with the information. This is an interesting one. We don't know who did it, but Israel will be taught a lesson, Iranian arms chief warns after oil tanker attack. Okay, so he's this uh, Iran guy said he stopped short of directly blaming Israel for Saturday's attack on an Iranian oil tanker off Syria, but has threatened the Jewish state with unspecified responses. A fire erupted aboard an Iranian oil, oil tanker off the Syrian coast on Saturday after what Syrian Arab news agencies described as a suspected attack from a drone from the direction of Lebanese waters. Some reports uh, said there, three people on board were killed, but others insisted there were no fatalities and the blaze was swiftly extinguished. Explosions on Iranian and Israeli vessels in the region have been frequent in recent months, with neither side accepting responsibility for the alleged attacks. The reason that I think this is kind of interesting, one of the things I want to point out about this that I think is worthy of watching. So you've got this war going on in Syria, and you've got oil from Iran going to Syria. And this is significant because Iran has oil, right? But they can't, because of various sanctions, they can't, or it's not very advantageous for them to sell oil to very many people. So their customer base is pretty narrow. And Syria, and I don't know, again, I'm not familiar enough yet to know which side they're supporting or whatever, but I think one of the interesting things about this is this is also a way to get away from the OPEC petrodollar situation. And I heard about this before this attack that it was something to watch for, which was basically that Iran was um, able to skirt the uh, petrodollar. That is the reason that, or one of the reasons that the, the, the dollar, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency is because it's sort of backing the, that you have to buy oil in dollars. And so Iran is selling these shipments that are not bought in dollars. So we Americans are also not wanting, you know, we would want to send a message to say, hey, we know that ship is there. Whether, look, I don't know who who uh, sent the drone strike or whatever, but I think this is an. It, there's a lot of eyes probably on this oil because it's under the table oil. And there's also reasons not to want the oil tankers to be going to Syria because, as we're going to see later when we look at that, it's just there's a war going on there and there's lots of sides and interests and stuff going on. So it would just be a strategy with regard to that too. Um, it looks like I don't have any more sort of uh, uh, political or uh, political or military stuff with regard to Israel, but there was some interesting stuff. This was the top news story about Israel on my uh, uh, aggregator today. And it's from Yeshiva World. I just think it's an interesting story because it helps us to really understand the state of play in in Israel to, to a certain extent. And this is from the Yeshiva World. Uh, I don't know. They might have a particularly serious stance on this or something. So this might not be representative of, of all, you know, Israelis or anything. But the tone of it is just fascinating uh, to me. So... The, the headline is, New Shocking Details on 
uh, Charidi, Charidi missionary family in Jerusalem. New information has been revealed about the shocking case of an English-speaking Charidi family. I don't know what that means. It's uh, maybe something to do with priests. They, they later said that they were uh, Kohanim, so part of the provable priest class in, in Israel. So maybe that has something to do with that, like a lineage kind of thing. A uh, Charidi family who integrated into English-speaking Charidi community in French Hill, this is in Jerusalem, as well as the broader religious community in Jerusalem, and was revealed on Sunday to be Christian missionaries. Um, okay, so moving down a couple paragraphs here. Currently, Michael, this is the guy, works at a gym in Jerusalem that is affiliated with a Christian organization and has reportedly, reportedly tried to spread Christianity there. Michael was already investigated by anti-missionary figures six years ago and even admitted to being a missionary but promised to halt his activities. Since his identity had been known for uh, to some for years, including uh, Yadil Akim organization and the anti-missionary Benyanu organization. It's hard to understand how the family ended up uh, successfully integrated into the community in French Hill, but that's exactly what happened. Here's an interesting line. The 13-year-old daughter of the family, whose uh, bat mitzvah was, bas mitzvah, mitzvah was made with community assistance while the mother was fighting cancer, recently told her friend at school that, quote, Jews ex uh, excuse me, Jesus accepts everyone. Even if you made a mistake, he'll accept you. The shocked classmate told her parents, and they immediately began investigating and contacting those who know the family. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, I knew that missionaries were illegal, um, you know, in Israel to whatever extent. I don't know what the punishment is or whatever, but I just thought it was interesting that this was, you know, in my entire Israel sort of feed, this was like the biggest thing. So I'm trying to watch not just the political stuff that you get, you know, and every sort of Bible prophecy thing is basically a who bombed who that day kind of thing. I really want to try to understand Israel as well. And uh, this is part of that is some of the stuff that I'm following. Um, I did catch another one kind of like that. Is it time to reject Orthodox conversions to Judaism? This is from the Jerusalem Post, which I thought was an interesting. I'm assuming the Jerusalem Post is extremely liberal, uh, but their their argument here was really interesting, which is that Orthodox Jews say that they're real Jews because they believe that the Bible is literal, when, when Jerusalem's post says it's just the opposite. They can't be real Jews because they believe the Bible is literal. They, and they're the real Jews, the people that don't believe the Bible is. And I guess this is an ongoing sort of fight that's been going on for a while. I mean, I, I mean, obviously you would know that the Orthodox would be against the liberals, but it was interesting to read this article in the sense that uh, there was a sense that this this who is the real Jew and who can convert to that there was a uh, some sort of dis distincting distinctive thing about who should be able to convert legitimately a, a person to Judaism. Moving on to Russia and China, uh, Russia, not NATO, has the upper hand in Ukraine from the national interest. So this is talking about we mentioned last time how. The Ukraine is basically worried that Russia is going to try to take it over. And Russia has certainly, you know, trying, has annexed parts of the Ukraine already in recent years and is trying to annex Crimea. So Ukraine has reason to be legitimately worried that Russia is going to try to take it over, especially if Russia believes that um, NATO or the U.S. is not really going to do anything then they probably will do it because they have a lot going on. 
financially and otherwise uh, to take Ukraine over. Now, this article makes an interesting point that Russia has the upper hand, not NATO. Now, you, one of the recent reasons that Russia uh, brought troops to the border of the Ukraine is ostensibly because because the Ukraine had been looking for European allies and talks with NATO to join NATO, which I don't think it is a member of. But uh, let's see, NATO pledged to defend Ukraine in a row of Russia raises. The, so it looks like, according to this uh, uh, article, NATO's pledge to defend Ukraine in its row with Russian with Russia raises. I don't know what row is. The question to whether the transatlantic alliance could keep its commitments. So this is basically saying that nobody wants to actual. For As I mentioned last time, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is the kind of stuff that got us into World War One, where um, you know this thing in the Balkans happened that should have meant nothing <laughs> to the greater world, but because of different. Uh, treaties that they had signed with this one. Now I have to go to war with them because that's what I said in the treaty. And now they got to go to war with them because that's in the treaty. These alliances force people to basically it just domino effect ends up with a world war. And if NATO says, hey, look, if Russia does attack Ukraine, basically the all the NATO nations will go to war with Russia. Basically, it's a bluff. And that's what this article is saying, that they're not going to do it. There's no support for that. NATO doesn't have the strength to do it, really. I mean, they may have the strength, but not the will, I guess, is probably the, the thrust of this article. And it's a good point. And NATO may be a, an obsolete organization, especially if Russia calls their bluff, which would be a very serious, you know, move here if they did do it. But they might be able to get away with it. It certainly would be condemned, uh, you know, by everybody and maybe even sanctions or something like that. But... Who knows? I don't, I don't know, know enough to really make any call. But interesting article. China and the U.S. on the brink of war, as a BBC correspondent predicts military clash in Taiwan. This is from Daily Express, which I don't know what kind of news organization that is. Uh, but where did I go here? Let's read a little bit. Tensions between China and the U.S. will continue to blow up, according to the BBC's World Affairs editor, John Simpson. He spoke with Professor Rana Mitter from the University of Oxford's China Center, who predicted that there will be a military clashes that could put the two powers on the brink of war. This comes amid an increase in Chinese military activity near Taiwan. BBC News host Rita Chakrabarty said Joe Biden's first overseas trip in the U.S. will be to the UK's G7, blah, 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 whatever. So basically just there's tensions between uh, China and the US because China is ramping up uh, things with Taiwan, which was right after the, the Suez Canal situation, which I think was, I think it was some kind of message because, I mean, I don't know why anybody wasn't reporting that this this boat before it uh, did this, uh, Drew, drew this lewd image in terms of GPS uh, uh, satellites, basically saying, we are going to mess with you, then proceeded to go mess with the world by lodging itself in the Suez Canal. Um, uh, anyway, and right after that, the Taiwan signs an agreement with with the U.S., which is just, again, it's just weird because it was entirely military-based. Like, we will support you, Taiwan, in the event of a military situation. I don't know who's supporting this. I mean, I know that America probably should, and Taiwan really depends on America sort of, 
you know, willing to step in in a war. But I should say about this, and I think this is an important point, that China, even if China wanted to take over Taiwan, they would want, they would not want to like nuke Taiwan. They want to control Taiwan. And that means they would have to like conventionally bring boats over to Taiwan, land them on the, on the sea, and then, you know, march up the, uh, the beaches in a very conventional war. And Taiwan has a military and they, you know, train for exactly that. And it would just be a, you know, it would just, it would be a very conventional type war, I think, which would immediately escalate it. So it's, again, I, I think old China Joe is so corrupt. He is in the bag for everybody in the world. So whatever China, I think if China is ever going to take Taiwan, if Russia is ever going to take Ukraine, it's going to be with old Joe sleeping at the switch. Unless there's something I'm missing, because there, I think there are elements that might even want this whole thing to blow up. So who knows? But I don't, I don't think so. I think that the kind of thing that you know, the World Economic Forum wants is they want a nice, easy takeover into communism, basically, and have all the wheels still spinning uh, when we get there. But to me, I, I think China is a bit of a wild card, uh, as much as sort of in the conservative media, we just assume that China is behind everything. But, you know, I don't know if that they are. I mean, I don't know how on board they are with something like the World Economic Forum or the Great Reset, unless they're the ones controlling it. But who knows? Who knows? I Again, got a lot to learn. Okay, so let's transition a little bit into the more Mediterranean geopolitics. Uh, we had the big news this time. Turkey fumes at Biden's recognition of the Armenian genocide. So the Armenian genocide, that was like, what, like 1914 or something like that? It was uh, 1915 events as genocide. This is basically... After right near World War One, I, I think, and the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and 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 they Turkey basically killed all these people. I think the argument is that we didn't kill that many people. You know, it wasn't 1.5 million or whatever. Anyway, it's just a weird move. Uh, Turkey gets mad because you know it's just, but nobody really cares. I mean, it's, I mean, sure people care, and it's, but it's all lip service to this. It just means basically nothing. My only takeaway from this is like. Okay, you know, that was cool. You talked about a 1915 genocide. How about you don't call the one that's currently going on in China, uh, whatever Joe Biden said, is, you know, cultural differences or something. <laughs> How about you call that one a genocide and we'll, we'll, we'll start to talk. But until you do that, that's a good meme, by the way. If anybody wants to make a meme, there's something there. Joe Biden wants to, you know, we'll call, you know, maybe the Drake format, you know, call that genocide, but not that genocide. I don't know. Uh, okay. What do we got here? Uh, Syrian Kurdish-led forces take control of uh, Kazmishlo neighborhood after ceasefire. Turkish forces attack PKK targets in northern Iraq. Uh, what We got more of this uh, kind of stuff. Okay, so I spent some time this week trying to brush up on this whole thing going on in Syria and the Kurdish situation and why uh, Turkey is attacking the PKK targets. and all. It's all kind of the same thing. Sort of. And here's another area where I've got a lot, lot, lot to figure out. But um, I got sort of a little uh, uh, map here. No, that's not it. This is Syrian and Iraqi Kurdish regions. And by the way, I am uh, doing screencasts of these podcasts in this news news format. I'm going to post it in places like, you know, your bit shoots and, and odysseys and, and place like that. Thankfully, I did get a producer who's going to be taking care of a lot of that. Uh, and so I look forward to more of that in the future. 
but anyway, so this is a, a map, and I'll try to describe it, of the Kurds. The Kurds are an interesting people. They are a really sizable ethnic minority that basically sit on the borders of uh, both of, of Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran. So they, they live in some pretty pretty dangerous places, but they really just sort of occupy all four of those countries, really, and they just kind of sit on all of their borders. But they've really just gotten the short end of the stick from basically after the Ottoman Empire failed. I think World War One, they were promised a nation, but it never showed up. Uh, and they've tried to get independence in each one of the countries that they're sort of in. They tried it in Turkey, tried it in Syria, tried it in Iraq, tried it in Iran, and just nobody will let them basically just be a nation, but they're but they're a very ethnic minority, you know, and they're basically, uh, they got a lot of different religions going on. They're primarily Muslim. There's some like Zoroastrianism recently and some other stuff, but you do kind of feel a little sympathy for them, uh, to, to a certain extent, uh, because they have just gotten the bad end of the deal. Long story short. Um, so they have their independence has been a something they're willing to fight for. And a lot of these sort of militia groups have shown up in the Kurdish idea, notably the PKK, which is recognized to be a terrorist organization by just about everybody. They are, as far as I can tell, a communist uh, based um, organization, militant organization that aims to get independence through violent means means <laughs> they are. Um, I don't know to what degree the, the Kurdish people like want that or recognize it. Um, but it's interesting. There are, but here's the thing. So the Syrian war happens and remember they're already kind of got people in Syria. Syrian war happens. It's all just, you know, it's all up for grabs basically. And the Kurds in, uh, in Syria, which now they're rebranded as like, um, the something democratic people or whatever. And so it's this new militant organization that's ostensibly the good guys. I mean, they're saying democracy is okay. They're inclusive of everybody, you know, not just Kurds, but everybody else. The branding of it is that it's an, it's this budding, you know, democracy in Syria, but it's really mostly Kurds. It's these Kurds. And I think it's interesting because they probably have the only incentive to actually fight there because they, to them, it's like, you know, everybody, all the other land before was like taken. Everybody was claimed. But here's this war that's going on in Syria. Nobody knows who's going to end up with what. To them, they probably see like, this is our chance. You know, this is our chance to actually have some borders and a state and whatever. So let's throw all of our people and, and resources into this. And they have been basically, you know, with the help of being backed by notably the U.S., uh, and being trained by the U.S. soldiers and whatever, have been pushing back pretty much by themselves the uh, ISIS and some of the other people in Syria and have basically called this one huge section of Syria, I can't remember what their name for it is, but it's like they're calling sort of northeast Syria, not not Kurdistan, but like I, they got a name for it. I can't think of it right now. Um, but here's the thing. So Turkey, which is directly to the north of Syria doesn't really like that that much. And Turkey is, as we saw in that one news story, uh, attacking the PKK targets in northern Iraq. So the point is, is that Turkey is, is now, after the U.S. basically left Syria, um, Turkey started attacking the Kurds that had taken all the, that fought back ISIS in Syria. So 
anyway, it's a really interesting and bad situation. I know I'm not explaining that well because it is incredibly complicated. Uh, so, and I don't understand it enough. But, and maybe it is that Turkey in this news story is truly fighting the communist PKK targets. And maybe it is even that the the so-called democratic whatever Kurdistan uh, thing in, in, in Syria is actually just another face of the PKK, which is what its critics would say. It's like, oh, it's, don't they just call them democratic, but they're really just the PKK. I don't know. And maybe uh, Turkey is justified in attacking these uh, Turkish forces here in northern Iraq, but they've also been attacking them in Syria. So I don't know. I don't know enough, but I would say... Um, just my first take on it is that I'm kind of rooting for the Kurds in this whole thing, if for no other reason that they seem like they have a legitimate reason and a, almost a to to and a legitimate claim to whatever happens in Syria because they've been the ones that have been, you know, the brunt of the the effort here. And I'm sure that there are people like uh, Turkey that would also like a piece of the Syrian pie if it in, in fact falls. But I don't even know whose side that they're ostensibly on. So. So again, take everything I'm saying here as a grain of salt, with a big grain of salt. Um, sort of trying to follow the Greek-Turkey uh, kind of situation, and just a quick thing that I did not know. Cyprus, which is the island, you know, right in the middle of the Mediterranean, Cyprus, is kind of jointly ruled by Greece and Turkey. Didn't know it. Didn't know that. And so here, uh, Greek Cypriots unilateral moves unacceptable, this is, uh, the idea is that uh, the president of Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, TNRC, said Sunday that the Greek Cypriot side's one-sided steps cannot be accepted. The Greek Cypriot side takes steps and signs agreements on its own. They claim that it's unnecessary to attack the Cur Turkish Cypriots. We cannot accept this. Underline that, that the Turkish Cypriots are as a sovereign, as sovereign as the Greeks on the island, uh, Tater said, with neither side can spread its sovereignty on the other side as both peoples have their own free self-government. So anyway, I mentioned this only because the whole, so Greece and Turkey are kind of seems to be mortal enemies in this whole thing. And in recent months, they've been fighting over basically oil rights off the, in the archipelago off the islands off of Greece, where there's oil. Everybody's finding now that you can dig these oil wells in a certain way and whatever in the ocean. And so it's this big sort of gold rush, I guess you'd say. And so now everybody's fighting about who has the rights around certain islands and stuff because they share a lot of the same uh, area. So anyway, I, I'm here. I, as many of you know that have listened to this podcast for a while, I'm following and trying to follow a lot of the stuff in the Mediterranean area because of Daniel uh, chapter 11, in which the Antichrist, this is something that pretty much every evangelical futurist would agree uh, with, uh, that the Antichrist says, or he doesn't say, it says that the Antichrist will uh, uh, fight wars, I think, for the control of the Mediterranean, which I believe is probably what the Ten Kings are representing, representing there. But in any case, whether or not Daniel 11 has anything to do with Daniel 7 is another story. But certainly the nations of uh, Egypt, and I would, I would submit the King of the North is a coalition of uh, northern forces that would be known of as a Syria at the time, but that would be like Iraq, Iran, Syria, all that kind of, those kind of nations are involved in Daniel 11, uh, as well as uh, Libya, Ethiopia, and uh, uh, Jordan, and Ammon, and the people on the west, uh, the, uh, uh, 
I can't remember what it calls them in Daniel 11, but the point is that whole area is in view. And therefore, and because I think that Daniel 11 may be one of our best uh, chances to, to see geopolitical things develop, at the very least, we could watch all this stuff to see if anything like a 10-nation coalition of any kind uh, develops, whether that's in the Mediterranean or, or in Europe or wherever. Uh, but I do think that the Mediterranean is the best place I know of right now to keep an eye on. And to that end, I want to briefly, before we move on from geopolitics altogether, talk about uh, the Ethiopia's Tigray region again. So a couple more things on this. And I talked about it last time with regard to the Ark of the Covenant, as uh, uh, Cornuk and, and others had presented the idea that the Ark of the Covenant is in some kind of St. Mary's Church in, in uh, this region, the Tigray region in Ethiopia. And I think it's a really good argument. If you have, haven't seen those arguments, I know you might sound skeptical about that, but it's an interesting argument. In any case, uh, crazy stuff happening in, uh, in uh, the Tigray region. But uh, the point here is uh, the updates, because there's almost no media coming from this region because there's been a blackout of, uh, of uh, reporters being allowed in. So this is the first I've seen in a, in a while of anybody being allowed into the region because it's basically been genocide. And it's crazy. I mean, I'd like to know what's happening with the, that church, for one, uh, because I think that the discovery of the Ark of the Covenant, it being made known, could be could be one of the things that just spirals us into a Bible prophecy scenario because so much of what we're to look for specifically in Bible prophecy is related to uh, a reinstitution of sacrificial uh, the, of the specifically the daily sacrificial system uh, on the on in Jerusalem and even though it's not technically necessary to have the Ark of the Covenant for that, it would be perceived, I think, as a sign, at the very least, for them to make it happen. I mean, it would be all that they would ever be talking about, right? Especially in the Orthodox-ish communities. I think it would make some non-Orthodox people more Orthodox, too. In any case, this is an interesting article. Just a quick thing that about this, they, there was another article about the just food crisis going on there, but there was just this one line that seemed to say it all in this. Uh, so this is this reporter talking about this with somebody and uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so this was a fight between Ethiopia's new government and the old government, and there was a power struggle. Just three weeks into the conflict, the government claimed victory, and more recently, Ethiopia said that uh, Eritrean troops that had come in at the beginning of the war with would would withdraw. But the fighting is still going on. This conflict is now fully a guerrilla war. It's a conflict that has become ethnic in nature, and similar things are actually happening across Ethiopia between different armed groups. And here it is. Wait, no, this isn't it. <laughs> and the bottom line is that this country, which has struggled for centuries to stay united, is being torn apart by the fighting of ethnic lines. This is it, a, an anecdote about what they did. We visited a town called Goda. The people there told us that Eritrean troops gathered the men from the village to help them loot a factory. They loaded cement and other goods for days, and then the people there said that they were executed. So just awful situation. They, they forced these people to help them uh, loot a factory full of cement, and then they just shot all the people that they forced to do that. So, you know, this is the first report in a while we're hearing of that. The early reports were just awful about it. Uh, I don't 
I'm not saying it has anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant. I'm just saying that that's an interesting uh, take on this as well. But the actual reason that I did think this may have something to do with Bible prophecy too is because, and this is, I saw a, a graph sort of uh, about greater Israel. Now, I think what is happening, and this is one of those things that not necessarily informing my uh, understanding of what to watch for, but I think it's a good working theory, is that if you really look at what's happening in Daniel 11, I believe the Antichrist is trying to create greater Israel. Greater Israel is what uh, was promised to uh, is, uh, Israel, but they never did realize it. It includes parts of Egypt and really parts of Africa altogether, uh, certainly Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, a lot of the countries mentioned, for example, in Daniel 11. In fact, I think it's a laundry list. Those specific nations are also mentioned in other places in Isaiah as places that the Messiah will control. I mean, in fact, really a, a messianic refrain that's mentioned many times in the Bible is this idea of everywhere from Egypt to Assyria. It's shorthand for the millennial kingdom in which will be ruled by the Messiah. Uh, and I think that if you look at Daniel 11, like a conquest of that is, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a theory. But the point is, is that this little sliver of region here in Ethiopia, uh, particularly Eritrea and the Tigray region, would be in some maps. Uh, these maps differ basically depending on, on wh where you're wa uh, looking at it. But in some maps, that area is uh, included in greater Israel maps. So that's another reason to look uh, and keep an eye on this conflict. All right, so we'll move on to economics, uh, and then we'll hit a lot of COVID and vaccine news after that, and then uh, wrap it all up with some uh, Christian news, some theology stuff that I think is pretty interesting. Uh, before, before we do go into economics, it's a good time to mention that I did get a donation, <coughs> excuse me, donation last week. Uh, and it was a sizable one from Richard. Thank you, Richard. I'll try not to mention full names here unless you uh, want me to or whatever, but um, thank you. And also thank you to Richard who donated to the film project uh, uh, back, well, in pre-COVID times. I really do appreciate that, and I appreciate everybody that donated to the film project. All right, moving on to economics, inflation, mixed basket, seven things that will cost you more and three that will cost you less in the COVID recovery economy. This is only here because it was from Forbes and this, you know, I, I hope I'm not uh, reading too much into this because I do have an inflation uh, keyword thing in my news aggregator. So I may be seeing a lot of inflation related stuff where I didn't before. I'm sure that's the case, but it's the people, in this case Forbes, that are talking about inflation just so frequently is uh, serious business because, as I said last time, uh, if once once you, that illusion uh, that inflation, because everybody knew that inflation was happening, it was just a matter of when it got to a point where you couldn't deny it anymore because that's been the, uh, the, the policy for a while. Some of the other stories sort of highlight that as well. Uh, futures hit all-time high in sleepy overnight session. This is from Zero Hedge. It's it, just talking about the stock market. <laughs> is that a, uh, this all-time high, right? The stock market at an all-time high is crazy considering the problems that this economy has with not producing the job problems. I mean, it is ridiculous. 
th what is happening with this. And it, all signs seem to uh, point to this being a melt up at the very least. Obviously, everybody agrees it's a bubble. Um, and that just kind of leads me to talk a little bit about that. You know, I've been watching a lot of and listening to a lot of macroeconomic stuff. And it's interesting to think that, you know, not everybody knows what to think about this or nobody really knows. I mean, there's debate, debates on whether we're going to have hyperinflation or deflation and, and they're basically all good debates. The bottom line is nobody really knows because here's the thing, the the stock market could just keep going up and up and up forever ad, because that's what happens in, you know, hyperinflation. I think it was Venezuela had, you know, the super high stock market because the dollars were worth less. And so the stock market just reflected less purchasing power. But the problem is, of course, that none of these numbers make sense on the current valuation of stocks, because that's how you used to be able to tell how much a stock should be worth. Uh, you know, you take the, the company and its, you know, future earnings, uh, you know, it's dead and cash on hand and all these things that, you know, they call, called it the uh, uh, Buffett indicator in that but all that's out the window and everybody knows it i mean none of these prices make any sense in terms of uh price discovery or valuations or whatever and here's the thing everybody everybody almost doesn't care i think a lot of people right now recognize that this is out of control because of course when the federal reserve is printing all this money what's happening to that money by and large is it's going into the stock market in various ways i mean they aren't supposed to do that legally, but they've got all these sort of ways around it. And effectively, uh, whether it's by buying treasuries or, or whatever, uh, mortgage-backed securities or however it's happening, it's ending up just blowing this huge bubble in the stock market. And a lot of people with a lot of money are just like, well, we'll just get out when we can. But right now, let's ride this as far as we can because they're making us billionaires, you know? Millionaires are becoming billionaires because... There is just it, it, you know, if you're if you really were playing this right, you could ride this wave with a hair trigger, saying as soon as this starts to go the other way, because everybody knows it's going to go the other way at some point, unless there is a melt up in which they'll get out anyway. Um, anyway, my point is that when the inevitable happens, either a everybody recognizes that the stock market is about to do a Venezuela and melt up, or b the stock market inevitably crashes because these prices are insane and everybody knows it, then you're going to have so much money looking for assets. And, you know, in that, think of just real estate. I mean, there's almost no real estate to buy. Um, you know, it's going to, it's going to just make certain things specifically, I think gold and silver, but again, I don't want to even say that because, you know, gold and silver is up and down. It's being controlled and who knows what the plans are for that in the, in the long term. But anything that's a real asset, I think, that is part of a possible portfolio thing that a lot people with a lot of money. Just think think if you're a hedge fund, you don't want to be in the market and you've got a billion dollars in the market. Do you know how hard it is to get rid of a billion dollars in something, anything, when the market's basically, there's no there's no things to buy? You know, there will be no, nothing on Zillow anymore. <laughs> you know, Zillow will just be gone in like a day because there's that much money in the stock market that needs to find a place to go when that uh, starts turning sour. Um so, you know, my, my thing is, you know, as best as you can, stuff that you can use, real assets. Um, and gold and silver is fine, but I've talked about that in the past. I think that even that 
is a bad deal for the most part. Number one, uh, you're gonna it's already taxed at what like twenty three percent or something like that in your gains, capital gains on gold and all these other assets. So they can steal your gold just by you know taxing it to death. So you know you ideally want to find something that wasn't uh, uh, so controlled taxation wise. But I'm not a financial advisor nor a son of a financial advisor. So um, let's move on. Russia accelerates its de-dollarization policy, chooses to settle exports in in euro over dollar. This is from Kitco, which is, you know, a particularly gold buggy kind of place. But they, So they, they follow a lot of this kind of in, uh, inflation stuff. Russian efforts to ditch the U.S. dollar are ramping up as a share of Russian exports sold in U.S. dollars have tumbled below 50% in Q4 for 2020 for the very first time. Bloomberg reported citing the country's central bank data. So this is, you know, I don't know, it sounds pretty, it sounds pretty significant. And here's my thinking on this. I think that everybody, I think even the U.S. knows that this is over. I heard it explained like this recently, and it made a lot of sense to me. Maybe it will to you. If you knew you were going to file for bankruptcy in like two months, and you know, bankruptcy, you basically, everything gets reset. You know, you don't have any more debt. Everything just gets basically forgiven. Wouldn't you just run up all this credit card debt? Just run it up and buy all this stuff, everything that you ever wanted. Just buy it as far as your credit limit would possibly extend. You just buy it all up because you know that you're about to file bankruptcy. I think that's what well we're doing here in America, right? We've just spent so many trillions of dollars on just this wish list of random stuff. And it's kind of to the point where I, even I'm like, what are you even raising taxes for? Nobody can ever pay this back. You're literally just printing all this money. Print up, print up as much as you need. I mean, I'm even like that right now. Obviously, you don't care. So what do you need my taxes for? They're dropping the bucket compared to what you guys are printing. So I don't really know what the numbers are, but I'm sure it's not a drop in the bucket. I'm sure it's quite a bit of money. But the point is, um, so I think that the, here's the only counter argument to that, which is that Everybody else is in the same boat. All the other currencies are terrible. They're all printing money as best as they can. I mean, other countries don't have the luxury to do it, and at least to uh, hide it as well as we do because we have the, the world reserve currency. But when you see other countries basically making moves, uh, recognizing this, and this could be also other political stuff, Russia and uh, uh, America are not on good terms, to say the least, these days. Uh, so this could just be a uh, currency war situation just between these two countries. But my first read on this is uh, it could be a big deal. I saw that China was also stepping up its gold purchases. It had committed to some, and I think I saw this on, uh, I think it was Max Kaiser in his uh, uh, Kaiser report had, had reported that. So it, it seemed that some of these countries were positioning themselves for what likely would be a, a, I don't know. I don't know what. That's the thing. Nobody knows what. I think some people say nebulously some sort of great reset, but, you know, what's that going to be? I don't know. And how's it all going to shake down? I don't know. But hopefully uh, this uh, we can be a step ahead of the, the, the competition here on this show by doing these kinds of uh, uh, reports. All right. 
Let's move on to COVID and got, as I say, a lot to talk about here. I'll try to go fairly quickly with it. First article I have here, I guess we need to talk about uh, the Modi thing in India. Delhi slams media for slanderous article titled Modi leads India into a viral apocalypse. So India, everybody, it's the biggest news blitz I've ever seen on COVID yet, probably. And that is India is just on fire, right? I mean, the whole country is basically dying from COVID because Modi probably did something really, you know, now Modi was a, is a conservative populist, basically. I don't know if he was pro-Trump. I think he was pro-Trump, right? Right. So the media absolutely hated him. And that's why some people are skeptical of this whole thing. I'm not sure yet. I could go a lot of different ways with this. I don't think we have enough information yet, but I'll give you some of the takes that are out there about this. So you have people like Alex Jones, who his take seems to be that uh, the deaths, he's not denying that there are a lot more deaths in India, but his take is that they're dying as malnutritioned people who are just getting sick with, you know, regular flu-like illness or whatever, or maybe nothing. Now, I will say anecdotally that 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 doesn't sound like a hedge to me just because there are some anecdotes that I've heard about India way before this that also makes sense with some of the stuff that I've personally witnessed in Africa and other places, which is that the lockdowns in India, the first wave of lockdowns just destroyed people in terms of starving to death. I heard a story, uh, it was an early lockdown story about India, and in order to really understand this, you have to bring in the Africa component, which is that people in the third world, maybe not everywhere in the third world, but certainly in the poorer places, they don't have they don't they don't have any food stored up. Even in the best of times, they go to work, they make money, they take that money to the market, they bring home food for that day. You know, they may have something at the house, but not much. And and if any of that very, you know, very important cycle gets disrupted, which of course a lockdown would just have devastating impact. So anyway, the that take that into the story, the anecdote that I heard way back uh, when the lockdowns were happening, that people in India were literally starving to death. And and the story that I heard that impacted me was this guy saying that he was going to kill himself and his entire family um, just because he couldn't just let him starve to death, right? He, he was making a rational case for killing himself and his family as opposed to just having them starve to death. And we can't hardly even conceive that because we don't understand what that level of food insecurity would be like. And so Alex Jones is making this case and he's bringing up all these news articles showing that the third world just got so impacted by what they're calling in the papers um, malnutrition, but is basically starvation. The numbers went just crazy. The numbers just went, just went parabolic. Uh, with starvation in the third world as a result of the lockdowns. Now, I think the lockdowns have the overarching economic crushing factor on both the third world and the first world and everything else. But for the third world, it's just it's just apparently bad. So anyway, 
Long story short, that's Alex's position that these people, and he's citing all the pictures of these, he's also making, they're showing all these mass graves in CNN or whatever, saying, look at all these pyres, you know, funeral pyres and, and bodies burning, and isn't that bad? And Alex is making the point, that's where they've always burned the bodies. They burn them on a regular basis. CNN was reporting that, you know, three years ago, saying it was bad for the environment. And he's pointing out that these are all emaciated bodies or whatever. But on the other hand, India isn't really denying it. You know, they, they're saying oh, we need more oxygen things. I thought we were done with oxygen, by the way. I thought we were done with intubating people. I thought we'd all recognize that that's a terrible thing to do. So anyway, he's saying, you know, we need more vaccines. We don't have enough of all this other stuff. So basically my take is that it could be a little bit of both. It could be the sort of Alex Jones take. It, it Definitely the, the liberal media is pouncing on it because you know he was promoting you know the kinds of things that the media or the, the anti-pfizer or the the pfizer uh people hate which is you know anti-parasitics instead of vaccines and all that stuff so they hated them but it could also be that maybe there is some truth to it maybe it's all true maybe there's this huge wave of death and new variants even in india i don't think anybody's claiming that maybe they are i don't know because there's a there's a part of me that pretty much expects at some point that a new thing will actually happen where our old arguments as conservatives won't make any sense anymore because it really will be an actual plague that's happening and a lot of people will be dying. I hope we're able to pivot and recognize that when it's happen, happening. And so I am watching this. I have no information one way or the other, but uh, it is an important thing. There are political reasons for it. Uh, that is certain. And I think that we saw this with, um, what was it, Z uh, 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 not Zimbabwe, but uh, uh, next to Kenya, west of Kenya, uh, um, psh, 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 the president there, uh, you know, was totally one of the best anti-COVID, anti-vaccine guys. He's the one that tested the papayas and they all came back positive for COVID. And he's saying that, you know, we need to use basically hydroxychloroquine and some other things to treat it. And not the vaccines, you know, was anti-vax to a certain extent, if not a, a large extent. And he turns up dead, uh, you know, missing for a while and then turns up dead of a supposed heart attack. And then the next order of business from his successor is, hey, guess what? Vaccines are great and everything that the world is doing, let's do it. In other words, all the countries are in lockstep right now. And it's so weird that they are because none of this makes sense, right? It, it, at least, at least it there should be somebody questioning. There are pockets of questioning things, Australia being one of them. You can tell certain countries aren't as, you know, completely controlled by the drug companies as everybody else. And I think that it really is a matter of money. I mentioned before that um, one method uh, that you could do that. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time in this. We've got so much to cover. Uh, just going down the line here, uh, Pfizer's new home uh, at-home pill to treat COVID could be available by the end of the year, CEO hopes. This is new. Uh, it looks like a Pfizer is going to get into the treatment game. Uh, absolutely no details about what this thing is or how it's supposed to work or whatever, but apparently the, they don't need anything but from anybody. They're, uh, if the clinical trials go well, well, that's an interesting idea, so I guess they're not going to... I uh, just expect this to go off without a hitch, but saying it's going to happen this year means that this is going to be another thing without any, uh, without any long-term trials and whatever. We'll see what happens. See if it is basically, I wouldn't be surprised if at the end of the day, it is basically a, uh, a patented version of hydroxychloroquine. 
NIH to study allergic reaction to Pfizer's Moderna vaccines, but trial design raises questions. This is from Children's Health Defense, so it's like a pro-anti-vax anti website. Take it with a grain of salt. They tend to link stuff really good, but it's one of those that if you linked somewhere, they would say, oh, what's that site? Uh, more than four months into the rollout of the Pfizer Biotech, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines, uh, da -da -da, they're, they're going to launch a clinical trial for allergic reactions to the vaccine. The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, NIAID, announced the trial April 7th, one day after researchers in the UK published a study confirming polyethylene glycol, PEG, a compound in the two vaccines, caused caused an anaphylactic reaction experienced by a woman who received the Pfizer vaccine. However, uh, and this is what they say, however, a close look at the NIAID trial guidelines reveals the study excludes individuals most likely to experience allergic reactions to the vaccines, those with PEG allergies and autoimmune disorders. So here's the thing about this. The PEG allergies and the resulting anaphylactic shock has been talked about forever. It's It's been the thing that is the thing that they will almost admit to, which makes these ideas of drive-through vaccines utterly insane. And, and I just heard, I think it was on No Agenda or something, they were talking about, it's so it's so uh, commonplace to see people having these, like, need CPR and all kinds of stuff in their cars after going to these vaccine spots. Like, so commonplace that the only way we can get news nowadays by, is by like actually witnessing something or having somebody in your family witness something because we can't talk to each other um, online anyway. Is it's, it's common, and that's because a lot of people are allergic to this PEG. It's a substance I knew about, uh, you know, way back. It was just a thing that that's in a lot of things, but a lot of people have allergic reactions to it. It's the thing that basically is coding the uh, mRNA, the mRNA thing that tells your body to start making spike proteins is uh, uh, coated in this stuff. And if you inject it into your body, then it's a even it's an incredibly serious allergic reaction, especially if you're predisposed to it, which will cause anaphylactic shock, which is, you know, your throat locks up and, you know, you, you can die. Um, anyway, so they're going to study it, which in itself is an interesting concept that they're admitting it, they're going to, to study it, but it, as this this particular article says it's not going to matter. They're not going to have anybody in the study that's going to actually show that it's dangerous and they're going to be able to come out with something that says, oh, we looked at that and that's not a thing and, uh, you know, do the same thing they did with hydroxychloroquine. All right, I'm going to just go right through my vaccine damage uh, files here. Uh, there is just a lot of this stuff out there. Kansas woman dies after being vaccinated for COVID-19. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has granted emergency, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm just going to read some headlines. Nursing mothers experience their milk supply stop after receiving a COVID injection. This is also from a anti-vaxxer website, Vaccine Impact. But again, if I'm going to quote a article, especially regarding this stuff, I'm going to have looked at it to a certain degree. And, you know, I expect maybe one in 10 of these might be a coincidence or something. But this is what they've done to us. They, you know, they're shutting down... There's a Facebook group out there just recently got shut down. It was just people saying, look, this is this is what happened to me after I got my vaccine. It gets shut down because you can't say anything negative about vaccines. So the re one of the reasons I started this news aggregator in the first place is because I recognized that unless I did something like this and, and tried to find all the places that is possible online right now that are not current yet shut down, 
I may never find this information anymore. And a lot of that means that I got to go to these sites where they're getting their information from people that are submitting it to them, or they're doing the research uh, in the VA, the VAERS uh, 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 thing. So we're, they're forcing us to, to uh, go into places and do things and to be the press, because that's not our job. It shouldn't be our job. The press should be the press. The press should be, at least in America, literally funded by Pfizer and, uh, and, and therefore not trustworthy because there is $32 billion slated for this year, probably more since they added the third vaccine idea. Uh, we're talking about so much money here that you can't fight that. Anyway, so I'm going to admit that probably some of these will, you know, end up being coincidences, but not all of them. Nursing mothers experience their milk supply stop after receiving a COVID injection. Nashville woman unable to walk claims Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is to blame. That one is from WKRN News in Nashville. So, you know, that's a little more reputable. A Nashville woman saying that, look, COVID-19 vaccine is to blame for her not being able to walk. Could the Pfizer vaccine lead to heart inflammation? A report found a link to my myocarditis. Uh, here's what we know. This is from Health dot com and it's linking to uh this article anyway from health.com let's see if we can pull this i read this earlier but basically the idea is um uh yeah it's probably but well i guess this is what i'd say you're finding all these people that are that are finding definite links but what they're saying is oh it's just so few people and we can't prove it in other cases or whatever, but it's not like they're going to do anything about it. It's not like they're going to do a study that would, uh, but at the same time, particularly with the blood cut, the blood clot and the heart attack stuff. And I'm starting to see reputable people recognize that that's an issue. And my personal opinion is that they're not going to be able to hide that for too long. It depends on how, how on the other end, their censorship thing is rolling along nicely. As I said, we're like, almost done with being able to say anything online whatsoever in, in print anyway, uh, where AI can like, you know, recognize it and take it out or whatever. There are some places, you know, there's still some places you can get away with it. And, you know, some places and, uh, cons- the consp- our conspiracy on Reddit, you know, you can some, I I did get something removed there the other day too. Uh, anyway, continuing. Pro-vaccine cybersecurity expert Dan uh, Kaminsky, dead at 42, following the experimental COVID shot. This one is the New York Post, but this is a this is an interesting one because he was really, really pro-vaccine, and uh, his family was like, "Oh yeah, well he had diabetes, and once he got hospitalized for diabetes, and it's like eh, that's not the same thing as getting a shot and dying at 42. Just because you went to the hospital one time from diabetes doesn't mean you didn't just die from the shot at 42." that you what died from diabetes instead at 42 or is just a coincidence or, you know, that's what, that's what's happening here is that they're able to say, could have been anything, could have been anything. He had some kind of thing. He had whatever, uh, 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 whatever cowlick or something like that. It could have been that. Okay. Moving on. Canadian doctor defies gag order and tells the public how Moderna COVID injections killed and permanently disabled uh, indigenous people in his community. This is an interesting one. This is very, I'll just read this article. Uh, Charles Hoff has been a medical doctor for 28 years in the small rural town of uh, Lytton in British Columbia, Canada. The town is compromised of many indigenous groups and the quote, first nations. So he was given 900 doses of the Moderna experimental COVID-19 injections 
Da -da 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 -da. Dr. Hoff reported these adverse reactions. Uh, let's see. Dr. Hoff reports that re the result of injecting 900 people among the indigenous First Nations community was that two people went into anaphylactic shock, one person died, and several others have suffered what appear to be permanent disabilities. He relates how one of his patients is in so much pain now that she prefers death to life. By contrast, no one in the community died or became permanently disabled due to the COVID-19 virus for the past year. Dr. Hoff reported these adverse reactions by email to the medical personnel in his community who were responsible for the rollout of the Moderna shots. Uh, which included uh, pharmacists, nurses, and doctors in his area, a total of about 18 people, he says. His email expressed grave concern over the side effects he was seeing, and he asked if perhaps they should pause the injections for a while. He reports that within 48 hours, he received a very stern rebuke from his superiors at the Interior Health Authority, accusing him of, quote, vaccine hesitancy, and that they were going to report him to the B.C. College of Physicians and Surgeons. They forbade him from saying anything negative about the Moderna shots by issuing a gag order against him. Dr. Hoff explains that this is a method of intimidation that's being used against other doctors who have uh, become too afraid to speak out because of the College of Physicians uh, and surgeons has great authority to shut down his doctors and, uh, and careers and heavily fine them. And this, my friends, if it ever, if it ever, if they can, if they don't get away with this, we're talking Nuremberg trials. We're talking, we're talking big time genocide stuff. And it's right in this razor's edge where I don't know. I mean, I actually continually pray for God to just, I don't know. Cause that's the thing. You don't know. You don't know what, what the extent of it is. Maybe it's a little, maybe it's a lot. But I, I pray that he'll just give us some kind of thing where we can rally around it and say, look, this is it. Hashtag this thing. Some kind of thing that they have just so much trouble refuting and that we could that's impossible to deny. And that, you know, because if something like that can happen, if, if some whistleblower or some person is able to do something, then it might just stop this thing. And it may, and it, I don't know. But otherwise, I don't know. Just the the level of censorship going on right now, it's a perfect storm of it all. It's like a race to see who will get it. The, the people that can just say something's happened or just the fear in, of losing your job and, and your career, uh, for especially with the medical professionals. Minnesota reports third COVID death, COVID-19 death of a child. So that's just the COVID-19, not the vaccine. Da-da-da. Uh, Report Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines could trigger Alzheimer's, ALS, and other neurological de degenerative, degenerative diseases. This is from the Gateway Pundit, uh, which is not necessarily known as a conspiracy uh, uh, organization. Now a startling new report in microbiology and infectious disease finds the mRNA... So what is this? Uh, from the report by J. Bart Clausen, MD. So got a medical doctor with this report... Um, Dr. Uh, development of a new vaccine technology has been plagued with problems in the past. The current RNA-based SARS-CoV-2 vaccines were approved. In the, da, da, da. the results indicate that the vaccine RNA has specific sequences that may in, induce TDP-43 and FUS to fold into their pathologic prion uh, conformations. So... Anyway, this looks like it's going to be a little bit technical, but it looks pretty solid. Uh, Jim Hoft, the Gateway Pundit, uh, uh, Pfizer and Mo Moderna uh, triggering Alzheimer's, ALS, and other neurological diseases, which I'm sure they're going to say just means it is working. 
All right, Pentagon tracking 14 cases of heart inflammation in troops after COVID-19 shots. This is from military.com. Uh, so again, it, heart stuff, relatively uh, uh, trustworthy source, source, I'm assuming. And it's just adding up more cases of heart. They're going to have a hard time saying, oh, it's just like five people had a heart problem one time. Yeah, that's what you can't continue that if day after day heart stuff with COVID, uh, with Moderna and with Pfizer, those names are starting to show up where they would not show up at all before. So Pfizer and Moderna uh, all the time. Uh, let's see. 44-year-old pastor dead after Moderna COVID shot. Uh, she w warned other pastors and African-Americans to follow her example and take the shot. That is from an anti-vaccine uh, impact. But again, you know, I have to say that just, just to let you know that it's not what the world would call a, a reputable site. I think Vaccine Impact is a great site, but at the same time, you know, it's not uh, um, the same wouldn't be considered a, a news organization by anybody else. By many people, I should say. 30-year-old man hospitalized with blood clots after J&J &J vaccine. Uh, that is from, again, children. Well, Children's Health Defense this time. This one from NBC Chicago. Does the COVID vaccine affect your period? Survey launched after some reports changes, uh, report changes to menstruation. So I've seen a lot of these articles, and this is, again, probably because I have a uh, uh, alert for vaccine men menstruation. Uh, keyword alert. So I'm seeing a lot of these articles, um, but it is interesting to follow because there's a lot of articles coming out about it that are basically saying a lot, a lot of nothing. They're basically saying both things simultaneously that, yeah, lots and lots and lots of people are saying this, but there's no proof that it could be, but it could be because it is causing a whole bunch of trauma. And, you know, sometimes you, you can have all kinds of changes in menstruation for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, let me go ahead and open this one up because there was an interesting quote from the person who was trying to be, uh, you know, diplomatic about it. She says, uh, but Clancy said last week that this is really bothering to her to hear doctors say that there was, quote, no link between the vaccine and menstrual changes or that it's, quote, just stress. I think this is something I think it's coming from a good place that medical doctors do not want to concern people nor add to vaccine hesitancy that some are feeling. However, in this long run, this will have the opposite effect. Gaslighting patients and saying their experiences aren't real is pat, uh, paternalistic, she tweeted. Patronal patronizing basically i wish more medical doctors respected our expertise and really maybe were that we're capturing something that is in fact quite real and that seeking to understand a side effect does not mean we say that the side effect is worrisome dangerous or not typical of vaccine immune response oh wow a rational person oh my goodness um so a common drug used to treat heart disease reverses obesity in mice okay so we have moved past covid everybody moved past covid and now are going into some general uh, food world order kinds of things. So tangential to health. I thought this was interesting uh, from KFI AM 640. A common drug used to treat heart, heart disease reverses obesity in mice. Um, here's today's feel-good story. Obesity is known to be an inflammatory disease, a defensive reaction of body to stress and ex excess nutrients. With this knowledge, a group of researchers at the Spanish National Cancer Research Center decided to find a new way to fight obesity by preventing inflammation. They found out that the drug di 
digoxin used for heart disease reduces inflammation and leads to 40% weight loss in mice that are obese with no side effects. Since no effective treatments for obesity and metabolic syndrome are available, dioxin may represent an effective therapeutic option, the researchers wrote. I only put this here to suggest, you know, sometimes obesity isn't always just, uh, you know, the common issues. It can be inflammation, according to this study. And I would suggest, other than going out and trying to find this uh, this this heart drug, I would suggest some of the natural stuff that is known to be really good for inflammation, such as uh, curcumin uh, uh, in relatively high doses. I'm sure there's all kinds of natural stuff. I don't really know, actually, but uh, that's one of them that my wife was talking about, so I'm sure it is a thing. And we actually ordered some recently. So maybe it will work on us, too. Um <laughs> Moving on to another food world order. My last one, promise for ovarian cancer treatment from plant-derived drug. This is from Health Europa. A new study has shown that a plant traditionally used for its anti-malarial properties holds promise as a treatment for ovarian cancer. Cancer, uh, cancer researchers at the University of Kentucky have determined that the drug artisunitate, synthesized from the plant Artemisia annua, kills ovarian cancer cells in multiple preclinical models. Uh, moving on in the study, the researchers determined that artensunate, I never can pronounce it, that has anti-cancer activity uh, at concentrations both alone and in combination with uh, kyboplatin and plexitaxel, a finding which supports the further clinical development of the strategy. So I'm glad that they're also studying this in, uh, in getting both of the sort of pathways for the cancer stem cells covered with using other drugs, as we talked about in the sort of cancer uh, podcast recently. If you haven't l listened to that, I think the podcast title is like a cure for cancer or something bold like that. But as I've mentioned, I think uh, Artemisia annua and Artemisin, which is available, you know, on Amazon, is pretty amazing, and, and especially in combination with iron, uh, for cancer, but you got to be very careful whether listen to that podcast. It's got to, it's hard on the liver. It can it's definitely not for people that have liver problems. But in this study, ovarian cancer is a pretty serious thing because even though it's a small cancer, it's one of the deadlier cancers out there if you get ovarian cancer. So this is promising for that. Uh, I would suggest that it's also promising. This article doesn't make mention of it, but one of the things that make uh, a lot of these anti-malarials, including artemisia and uh, ivermectin and some others extremely amazing for cancer is because they kill cancer stem cells, um, which is something that has been the bane of cancer uh, uh, treatments for all this time, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation. It's that, yes, you can kill the cancer cells, but can you kill the cancer stem cells? Because if you don't, then it's basically useless to do all the other stuff because the cancer stem cells will essentially go into hiding and they'll reproduce this time resistant to whatever you did last time. Uh, so you have to kill those cancer stem cells. And that's one of the things that, uh, um, that are the derivatives of Artemisia annua uh, do. In this case, our artisunate is the injectable form, which is also one of the, is the leading cure for uh, malaria at the moment. All right, moving on to the final few stories, and these are under either Christian news or theology. And this is something I'm tracking mostly a lot of Christian blogs, uh, keywords like um, uh, biblical archaeology or apologetics or creation or these kinds of things. Also, 
I try to follow a lot of the stuff in the prophecy world, like a lot of the prophecy blogs and stuff, but you'd be amazing how little useful information comes from that particular aspect of this. Uh, I should pull it up right now if you, for those of you watching my uh, tab uh, for all end times related articles. And it's just, I mean, it's just not a lot of good stuff. I mean, I, I know that some good stuff will come from it, but but right now I'm not uh, I'm not seeing it. But I'm sure some stuff will. So anyway, first article is from Creation Ministries International Daily. Plant uh, feeding on quartzite support rapid plant growth after the flood. So the idea here is that um, basically the, they're they're seeing that. In Brazil, where you've got this quartz bedrock in places that you know have just patchy little bits of you know grass and soil, but it's mostly just solid quartz, they're finding that uh, plants are able to get their roots down there to get some kind of nutrient that they need to grow, which is basically really really hard for anything to grow there. But they found a way. And uh, there's some interesting points made here about this being relevant for uh, an argument of, of plants growing after the flood in which things like there could have been logs left around. This is an interesting one. Uh, da, 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 da. Food plants likely started growing on newly exposed land, log, vegetation, mats that contained seeds, spores, and plant debris, including roots, would have been left on the new land. These mats would also have floated on the oceans for many years after the flood, dispersing animals and vegetation to many land areas. These factors explain why the dove returned to the ark with a fresh olive leaf approximately 120 days after the ark landed, Genesis 8, verses 10 through 11. Olive trees would have been among the few, uh, among the first to grow since they can germinate by vegetative propagation from a branch as well as by seeds. Noah waited another 101 days before he released the animals from the ark. This waiting period gave enough time for seeds to germinate and grow enough to provide food for the animals. Uh, plants and seeds can re recover fast on devastated land. Uh, implications, we are, uh, this is speaking specifically of the quartzite discovery. We are increasingly discovering that many of the plants that colonized the earth after the flood had root specifications that would have aided growth in even nutrient-poor soil or bare rock. This reflects a creation usefully designed to bounce back from a calamity, e.g. the Genesis Flood. In the case of the Velociake family, even bare quartzite rock produced growth. Maybe not groundbreaking or anything, but just an interesting thing that came out fairly recently, four days ago, on that study, and again from Creation Ministries Daily. And this one is from Cold Case Christianity. I think it was just a video, uh, but he asked the question, what do Christians believe about the length of creation days? And he basically in this video goes through the two possibilities, young earth or two supposed possibilities, young earth and old earth. And it just always bugs me when people act as if that is the only option, because it seems to me that there is a third obvious option well, it's not obvious by any means, I guess, but it should be obvious, uh, at least to people uh, who understand time dilation. So what I mean by that is, according to the theory of relativity, E equals mc squared and all that, uh, matter uh, is equal to, well, how do I explain this? 
um, time is relative. Time is relative to two things, according to the theory of relativity. Number one is gravity, and number two is speed. So, for example, if you right now were on Jupiter and I was, or let's say you're on the, the, yeah, you're on the sun. I think it's much, much bigger, right? So you're on the sun, say that's possible, and I'm on Pluto, and we both have live video feeds on us. And actually, because I think, let's see, time would, gravity, I think that the person on Pluto their live feed would show the person just aging, growing a big white beard, and just wilting dead, you know, really, really quickly. While the person on the sun is just looking at his watch, like wondering what's going on, because literally time is relative to where you are standing in terms of its gravitational displacement. So when you say, how old is the Earth? You say from the Earth's perspective, because that is how many millions or billions of years you're talking about from the Earth's perspective. Similarly, speed is an important aspect of time. So, uh, you know, people, if you're going, that's the whole theory behind uh, 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 Planet of the Apes, right? He goes on this uh, space trip. He's going near the speed of light. He comes back and eons and eons have passed on Earth, even though uh, uh, not that much time has passed for him because of time dilation. In that case, the speed aspect of E equals mc squared. The point is that both of these are, well, the, the speed thing is most relative to the days of creation. If as is abundantly clear, the days of creation do show a pattern of uh, uh, what we kind of understand to be the Earth's geological progression, right? So that's why old Earth creationists have a leg to stand on in some sense, because they say, well, look at the days, you know, the water was here and, and this was next and this was next. And that's kind of what the scientists sort of believe is what came first or whatever in the Earth. So they just say, we'll just have an eon be in one day. But the young earth creationists will say, well, no, it says one day. It should be one day, right? So is there any way to combine those to say, well, yes, it was one 24-hour day, seven 24-hour days, but within those contain eons. And that is, that's what Gerald Schroeder did in his uh, book, uh, the Science of God. Gerald Schroeder is not a Christian. He's an Orthodox Jew, uh, but he's also a nuclear physicist uh, at MIT. Professor wrote this book. Pretty amazing stuff. Basically, it says that if the Big Bang happened, you know, boom, all of a sudden matter was screeching out from the, the, the center of the wherever. And as we now know, uh, matter was is slowing down because of cosmic background radiation. You can tell that it's actually expanding and slowing down, which means that you could run that in reverse and say that at one point it was going really, really fast. And so you can actually make calculations based on if matter was, in fact, all matter, including the earth, was speeding across the void, expanding at ever slowing down speeds, but incredibly fast, there would be an exponential decrease in epochs within a 24-hour period from the earth's perspective as it progressed. So for example, there would be more quote-unquote time in day one than there would be in day two because it's slowing down. There would be more, less time in day three, but still, you know, what we would perceive as many, 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 many years, but really would just be one 24-hour day because that's what Schroeder did. He's basically saying, take 24-hour day, a 24-hour period, and just run it, run the calculations based on, on, on velocity, 
and you get this decreasing progression of whatever. He comes up with an actual specific number that he says actually works with what they currently understand the, the current age of the universe is. I'm not sure. I, I don't know enough to, to go with his calculations, but I, the, the concept certainly makes sense. Um, and then, of course, by the time you get to Adam and Eve, you're basically on the same speed, if you will, that we're on right now. So 6,000 years from Adam and Eve is certainly, uh, almost certainly what happened. I mean, that's that, that seems quite obvious. It was Adam and Eve, the Fertile Crescent, Sumerians shortly after that, and, and, and boom, you know, there you are. Here we are 6,000 years later, which you can fairly easily track. Anyway, I just thought that was an uh, uh, option for me to say my little spiel about that, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this news store news program anyway, because it gives me a chance to, you know, talk about all the stuff I don't normally get to talk about in the course of these events. So I don't right now, I don't think I'm going to post the links to all these articles. I may post it in this, uh, in this, uh, on Bible prophecy talk, but I think in the future, what I'm going to do, and I don't have the setup yet, but probably will by the next show, um, have an email list in which I will email the links to these stories because for various reasons, I don't want to put the links in the description um, because all these like link backs and it just draw too much attention. I just, I, I just don't feel like that's the way to do it. I'd rather do it with the email list. Uh, so I'm going to try to set that up by next time uh, as well as have all kinds of videos out with this. Um, Subscribe to the podcast feed. Tell your friends about it, BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can donate at the website. And thank you very much for listening. We will see you next time.